Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Dr. Cameron Murray, economist and blogger at Fresh Economic Thinking. We talk about the economy of Robinson Crusoe and how it can be used as a teaching aid to understand economics, his views on general economic thinking and theory, and how we should embrace a pluralist approach to economic thinking, a little on the Australian property market in which he is in the heart of at the moment, and how you can use blogging to make you accountable and achieve success when writing your master's PhD or doing any other research. You can check out all the show notes at economicrockstar.com forward slash Cameron Murray. Congratulations to Benjamin Copen from Minneapolis, USA, winner of our most recent giveaway, the book Age of M, written by Robin Hansen, as featured in episode 91 and 73. Enjoy the read, Benjamin. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. I'm a fan of the the basic idea that there's no monopoly on the way to think about the world. And and I think one of the, the gifts of economics is that it actually does give you that kind of uh, the Bible, you know, it gives you the answer to everything as a, a trade-off with an optimal control sort of problem. And that makes it very powerful and hard to ignore, but it doesn't necessarily make it true or useful to society in general. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honoured to have Dr. Cameron Murray join me today. Hi, Cameron, welcome to the show. G'day, Frank. Thanks for having me. Dr. Cameron Murray is an economist with a passion for improving society. Cameron writes under the pseudonym Rumpelstatskin. He has a broad range of interests and a diverse background in property development, environmental economics research, and economic regulation. In his writings, Cameron aims to bring reliable insights from the academic and technical literature into the mainstream economic debate. Cameron thinks that economics could be much better than it is, which is why he often writes about very fine technical points of economic theory and the nature of the profession. Dr. Murray specializes in property markets, environmental economics and corruption. Cameron maintains an internationally renowned personal blog called Fresh Economic Thinking, and also writes for Macro Business, Idea Economics, and Evenomics. He recently completed a PhD at the University of Queensland on the economics of corruption. Cameron, yeah. your website, I, to be honest, when I looked at your website, that's how I, I've actually found you on Twitter at Rumpelstatskin. And then that redirected me to your website, Free Thinking Economics, and I was blown away by the content that was on it. And as I mentioned during the introduction and even the name of your website, Fresh Economic Thinking, that's exactly what it is. And you approach it from a pluralistic point of view, the whole economics and challenge the core principles and theories of economics and identifies whether they work or not in the real world. That's right. Well, I, I try my best. And thank you for your kind words, Frank. Yeah, I, I guess I, I started... Um, I started blogging uh, when I started my master's degree and I was I actually, uh, I had a problem. I, I wanted to know whether all these personal consumption decisions we make to look after the environment actually did anything. And, uh, and I didn't know what to do with this idea and how to pursue it. And, uh, and I ended up 
um, doing a lot of my own research before stumbling into doing a master's in economics. And that's how I started. And, and from there, because it seemed like such an obvious thing that uh, if I ride my bike instead of driver, driving my car, it must be good for the environment. But when you look into it, it's, it's not that clear cut. It, it kind of started me on this path of questioning everything else. And uh, obviously, uh, once you're in that mindset, um, you know, I, I ended up pursuing a PhD because I had a lot of other questions that I couldn't resolve. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's how the blog came about. And I've been doing it for eight years now. And how important was that for you? You said you started or when you did your master's. Do you think that took away from your time spent at the master's or that, did that improve your knowledge base and your questioning and your finding out answers? No, I, this, the second part, <laughs> Frank. So I guess you could explain it rather than being uh, starting with economic theory and, and approaching the question. I started with the question and thought, how do I solve it? So I, I was happy to, to, to look anywhere and take ideas and evidence from wherever I could find them. Um, and that was far more useful uh, to me, no matter how many hours I spent writing writing in the middle of the night. And, and I'll tell you, when I started writing, I was terrible at it. So it did take a long time. And even when it went up, it, it, it didn't read very well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, part of, part of, I think, what a lot of bloggers do is they write to help themselves learn. So they say, what do I think of this? How do I make sense of it? And by the act of putting it on the page makes you, makes you, sure you're not missing any steps or or that you know your logic isn't sound you know you might say it's that um you know that model thinking economists have where they want to make sure each step fits together yeah the act of reading and then writing it down does that and i'm sure it's made me a better economist and i'm sure it's helped well it has definitely helped uh, my master's and my phd study um uh, there are ideas and people um that i would have never found uh, had i not started blogging and, and met people and, and built up these networks. And was this something you were encouraged to do or someone suggested or you decided to do it on your own th back? <laughs> no, not at all. I, it, it wasn't common uh, at all at the time amongst anyone I knew. Um, it was really just a personal outlet for me. Um, and only since then have I discovered how much the economics blogosphere has grown and become interconnected and in a lot of ways it's taken control a lot of, in, of a lot of uh, big debates in economics at the moment it's really that kind of uh, front end of these big um, you know research agendas that are happening at the moment so yeah in a way I've kind of um, got sucked into the vortex of this global movement and uh, and no I totally wasn't encouraged but I definitely would encourage it to any of my students and I have considered um, at the uni now they do you know get people to write blog posts as part of their assessment and get to read each other's and critique it and that sort of stuff it's a really good way to get your ideas out there and, and I guess get feedback on them really quickly. And it's a great learning tool as well for to keep track on your progress through your studies as well. If you were to put all your thoughts down on a blog and whether someone finds it and reads it and comments on it, for example, there's a blogger called Pat Flynn and he has a podcast as well, The Smart Passive Income. And when he started in the architectural industry, that's what he did. He learned on the go, but created a blog from it. 
And he discovered that people were actually following and learning from what he was putting up on. So I suppose it is a great way for students to maybe, or even someone doing research to start a blog and, you know, you hold yourself accountable by putting yourself out there and get your work done on a, on a weekly basis. Correct. And, and you know what's interesting? If you've got something out there, it's much easier to get in touch with, with other people in other countries and other professors who are interested. You've got something there. They can refer to it. You've cited them. They can see it. It's fast. It's easy. You can, you know, you can elicit, um, some quite, quite good info. Uh, when I did my masters, I, I found a guy in, in Sydney at the University of Sydney who was doing a lot of work on embodied energy calculations. Um, you know, how much, when I buy a cup of coffee, how much energy does it take from all those inputs to make that cup of coffee? And he ended up providing me with, with some data from their research group so I could complete my master's. And, you know, it's those type of connections that really help. When I did my PhD, I, I was found through blogging and invited to a, a, a conference in Sydney to present some of my work on uh, urban economics and corruption in planning. Um, so it's definitely a great way to inject yourself into the, the debate that's going on without kind of um, going through what I consider this uh, antiquated backwards process of the, uh, the academic journals and the traditional academic literature. And through what you said earlier on, you're going to start off possibly a bad writer, but like anything else that that someone's new to, it's going to make you even a better writer. And, you know, you're going to make yourself, as I said earlier on, accountable and get your posts on out there on a on a regular basis. Yeah, that's right. That's that's what I do. And it's it's been it's been terrific, actually. I've met a lot of good people and now actually uh, some some real life friends who uh, have, for example, moved from the UK to Australia to to do their studies that I've found through blogging um, and especially the. The student movement for a more pluralist economic teaching has coalesced through the blogosphere in a lot of ways, and they've gained a lot of attention as well. And pluralism, or the pluralist approach to economic thinking, is that where you're coming from yourself, Cameron? I'm a fan of the the basic idea that there's no monopoly on the way to think about the world. And and I think one of the, the gifts of economics is that it actually does give you that kind of uh, the Bible you know, it gives you the answer to everything as a, a trade-off with an optimal control sort of problem. And that makes it very powerful and hard to ignore, but it doesn't necessarily make it true or useful to society in general. So I think the, the problem with changing to a pluralist approach and saying, well, you know, this group of people think this and another group think you can't see it that way and make different assumptions and then there's a third group here and then you know um it essentially it, it it's it's not as attractive as this book with all the answers in it you know although it might be more true that there isn't one particular approach and that you can look at things differently it's it's not something that's memorable that sticks in your mind that defines you as an economist there's a lot of um things missing and i think if you want to change economics you need you need something like that some kind of um some kind of core idea and i my, my suggestion is that we raise um 
we raise this core idea up to a kind of higher level that we can then place all these alternatives within it, if you know what I mean. And that's what I've been writing about a lot this year of having this mud map, um, this idea of thinking about um, the economy in terms of uh, domains of interest. Are we talking about money or real resources? Are we talking about human utility or are we talking about political systems? And and that structure, that map uh, of different domains lets you then piece together all these pluralist approaches and say, well, these two approaches conflict because of this reason here and here, but they agree because of this reason here and here. And if you're approaching a problem in real life, all you need to do to find out which is right and wrong is to know if you know which key assumption holds and which doesn't from you know what you can observe in the situation you're looking at so yeah in my in my mind um, I like the pluralist idea, but I think there has to be some kind of synthesis that um, that makes sense of the, it all because when you just look at it naively, it looks like there's just a bunch of conflicting ideas out there. But if you can actually get people in a room who know their stuff inside out and you can dig down into it, you can actually find out where different approaches agree and disagree and why. And because, you know, if they're internally logical, then they obviously it's it's something else that conflicts, if you know what I mean. You just got to find out which which part it is and then you can make sense of it all. So. So I guess I have a fear of the pluralist approach being a chance for students to go window shopping for a kind of school of thought that suits their political disposition rather than what we might call a economic science approach that says this is what we know from different types of research in different areas and there are conflicts in these because of this and these all seem to agree and there seems to be this common thread because of this. So that's my kind of view. Can I ask you, you mentioned there about a mud map and domains approach. And I never came across the term mud map. And I actually came across it earlier on on your own website. <laughs> it's, it's not like a mind map or is a, a mud map something in which you have all of this information that you can't wade through and you try to make sense of it? Or So a mud map is, I guess it's an Aussie uh, term. When you're lost in the bush and you want to sit down and tell your mates where you are, you get a stick and you draw in the mud what the ground looks like and where you're going to go. So it's a real simple, essentially a simple diagram to give you the lay of the land. So, yeah, <laughs> that's, to be honest, I didn't know it was such a peculiar term until I wrote it and people started asking. <laughs> yeah, and so, I mean, I've, I've come up with sort of a, what I think is a useful way to help you handle different approaches in economics and you would have seen one of my recent posts about um, Steve Keen's attempt to um, you know improve our understanding of monetary systems and and the real economy that you know it, there, there is some use in, in in thinking hey we're adding up money accounts here but this other measure is is measuring something different so we kind of can't add up horses and and cups of coffee and make sense of it if we're going to talk about one thing and the other we've got to make an argument about how they're connected and, and and that sort of thing you can't just kind of just because they're numbers and we measure them in dollar terms doesn't mean they add together behind all that are these kind of these big conceptual ideas about 
you know, what's value added, what's a market good and what's a transfer, things like that. So, you know, once you're, once you're very particular and careful about exactly what you mean, you can help disentangle some of these puzzling conflicts between different approaches. Cameron, your objective or one of your objectives is to teach economics better. And I love one of your posts that you put up recently called Robinson Crusoe's Real Economic Choices. And it's, it seems to be the, the Robinson Crusoe story. It's seen as a teaching aid to try to understand some concepts in economics. And if you don't mind, I'd love you to dive in and just explain and give us an overview of these concepts that actually we should be able to spot as economists or as students of economics through this movie or story. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that post came about because once when I was teaching, I, I was looking for examples to use and it, and it just occurred to me that the example of Crusoe that we use for understanding comparative advantage actually lets us explain or observe a lot of the other fundamental ingredients to an economy. And so what I wanted to do is essentially put down my ideas of what, what could be done with the Robinson Crusoe story that we totally ignore. All we do now is um, we kind of start with a, we need students to understand uh, comparative advantage. What's, what story is memorable enough for them to remember this basic idea? And then we pull out Robinson Crusoe or some other story. Uh, and so when, when Crusoe is joined by Friday on his island, you know, we can then contrive a situation where one of them is better at fishing and one of them is better at collecting coconuts. And if if they do what they, they're better in or they can produce more per day in, they'll have more altogether. Now, that idea is true. I mean, there's n if that is the situation and there's a big nice assumption that we're going to put aside for now, if that is the situation, it's definitely true that one of them should fish and one of them should collect coconuts and then combine their resources and they'll have more than if they tried to do two different activities in the same day. But the story also hides all the other important things that go on in, in real economies. So I wanted to give an example of how would you interrogate the Crusoe story from with a kind of a, with an economics hat on, what would you do? And, and again, I, I thought, well, I've got this mud map of ideas, economic ideas. Maybe I should just go through it and, and look at what part of the story relates to different parts of my map. And so on my map, the first thing is the social and political environment. Quite strangely, although we use the story to teach specialization, we forget that in the actual story, Friday becomes Crusoe's servant, teaches him Christianity, and under this condition, you wouldn't get this specialization case that we use for our example, because Crusoe is essentially Friday's superior and can employ him as a servant and um, do, you know, direct him as needed. So essentially, you end up with, instead of two people specializing in trading, you just have Crusoe, the single producer also using Friday's labor as one of his inputs. So, you know, when we get to the real economy, we can ask stuff like that. Well, why do people have particular rights over particular things? You know, why do employers have rights over employees? Why, why do we do this? 
it lets you ask a lot of questions. How do politicians get power to make rules about people? You know, it opens up all those interesting things. Then we can ask, well, how do we know who has the rights to fish and collect the coconuts? Because if Crusoe really is the boss of the island, surely he owns all the coconuts. And Friday would have to then um, trade his labor to get any of the produce of the island. You know, so we have this hidden assumption in the specialization story that uh, for some reason there is a, you know, it's a common pool resource, all of the island's goods, and they're not private property. Um, so, you know, then we get to open up questions that we can see in other parts of real life, you know. Um, why do particular groups have particular rights to property here? And what if we redistributed the property? Would we get better economic efficiency? That sort of thing. And we don't seem to ask those questions because we've never really uh, discussed them when we study economics. We kind of, they're the things that we don't talk about when we focus on these just few, few ideas like comparative advantage. There's a few other things. I mean, the other question uh, I ask and what I have discussed in one of my classes before, but I want to develop further, is how do you keep accounts when you specialise? So what if the fish aren't biting one day and you've gone and specialised and then you both return at the end of the day and all you have are coconuts? Do you start, you know, notching up a tally in a cave, you know, with some chalk or some, you know, on the walls of the cave? How do you keep accounts? How do you decide? Is there interest on this? If, if Friday's it doesn't come through with his fish one day, does he have to then con contribute extra fish to the pool the next day? So all of these things, well, why do, we, why do we keep accounts and settle accounts with money? I mean, these are all there hidden in the story and, and we ignore them. And one of, the, one of the more interesting things that is directly related to specialization that we ignore is why on earth is one of them better at fishing than the other? How did they get there? Did they have a fishing net? Did they exclude the other person from the reef where all the good fish were? And why couldn't? Given enough time, the other, say, for example, Friday, learned to fish even better than Crusoe does now over time. So you have this dynamic problem and, and none of that gets, gets answered. But all of those things are crucially important for a lot of the, uh, the real life economic problems we deal with when we're out there trying to manage resources and, and um, make public investments, you know, where, when we do you know, I, uh, reclaim when the state takes control of, of land for public investment, what we're really saying is we've got the allocation of property rights not quite correct right here. We're going to use the power of the state to fix the allocation of property rights to improve overall efficiency. You know, we're essentially all, all the time acting in conflict with the basic um, economic idea, yet if we really looked in a lot of the stories and examples we use, that, that idea is there. We just don't talk about it very much. I'd say in this Robinson Crusoe economy, if we could apply it to the real world as well, if you have that surplus of, say, coconuts and the fish aren't biting, what could potentially happen? You know, would there be any way in which there's an IOU created or you exclude the other person or would they reciprocate? That's <laughs> who knows. I mean, that all depends, doesn't it? You could probably, you could do the experiment. I'm sure a lot of reality TV shows have come close to doing that when they, you know, put their, uh, the survivor TV series and other ones where they put people on islands, you know, how do they, 
how do those groups of people keep track of who contributes and who doesn't and who shows up with nothing? Um, you know, mostly it's, it's implicit, right? Um, but certainly there are ways I, I use the example, uh, when I start, um, teaching about money, I use the, uh, Capitol Hill babysitting co-op, um, paper. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. I see the link within the, the Robinson Crusoe poster, right? So it was uh, in the Journal of Money, Credit and Banking in 1978, and it was about a, a babysitting co-op that issued its own tokens, uh, babysitting credits that it would trade to, you know, circulate some money and encourage people to babysit other people's kids. But um, what they found is they still ended up with recessions because the people who babysat a lot often didn't need to then babysit the kids. And so they had all the money but didn't need to spend it and no one else did. <laughs> so all the ba- the babysitting collapsed. Um, so, you know, they had to issue more money um, so that this inequality in the babysitting ratio could uh, could be sustained in such a system. So I find those sorts of things very simple um, examples and accessible to students but fundamentally, they tell the exact story of, you know, the, the whole monetary system itself in a lot of ways. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing more advanced to the whole monetary system except that, you know, it's not a few pieces of paper. It's a very large and interconnected database with a lot of, a lot of people um, involved. And I wonder if in that situation, say the Crusoe situation, if there was a surplus of one type of good like the coconuts, could there be a case whereby the owner of those coconuts could end up hiding them <laughs> and sussing out whether there's going to be a catch of fish and then they would trade, given that there's a surplus of coconuts and there's a scarcity of fish. Look, you know, they don't want to show that surplus, you know. So there's all these questions. You're that just, yeah, the, you're just saying, well, you get a lot of market power if you're the only one with food at the end of the day, <laughs> you know. Um, so, it, yeah. I mean, it, it is endless. And I guess what got me thinking about this is, you know, all you need for a minimal example of any sort of conflict over trade or any any institutional setup is, is two different people that need to cooperate in some way. I mean, with one, you know, you don't really have an economy. You have a psychology, an individual person. But pardon me. Once you've got two, then pretty much every problem that economists deal with arises. Um, yeah, so so that's why I really wanted to, to write about it. And, and essentially, you know, like I said with my blogs, I put the ideas down to hope that they develop over time, other people read them, give me feedback, and I can build them up into, for example, this, this one here, some much better teaching tools in the future. And I guess it all depends on the political environment as well, the structure, the hierarchy between the, the individuals or these two individuals in the story as well. So, I mean, it's, it's so complex, isn't it? That's right. I mean, it's not as straightforward. That's right. I mean, the, because the, these examples of um, two, um, assuming two good economies, they're too simple to relate to the economy as a whole. Um, in some ways, but in many ways, I think once you can get around, around your head around the fundamental 
economic dilemmas faced with two people, then you can then um, aggregate that up to the fundamental economic dilemmas we face in groups. And of course, that's one one other thing uh, in economics we do a lot implicitly is we we treat individuals or groups or countries or any sort of level of aggregation as if they are an individual without really ever discussing why we do it. So we often go, well, there's an individual, you know, objective function. And then we turn around and go, well, there's a firm level objective function. And, you know, there might be thousands of people in this firm, but we're just going to pretend they they all act as one. And then we're going to have a national, you know, specialization at a national level as if, you know, nations are essentially a single unit. And we, and we do that all implicitly without much discussion or anything. And that's why on my mud map, which kind of has captured all these puzzles and I've put them there. Um, aggregation is one of these things you should ask whenever you inquire about an economic problem. How do we go from the problem at, at one point to the problem as a whole? Um, and is is the problem of one person in the system, is it the same at a, for the system as a whole? Or does the way it aggregates together and interacts with other people mean that in aggregate the you know, it looks kind of different to what it looks at an individual level. And that's something economics is, is very bad with, but does it implicitly all the time anyway. Cameron, you specialize in property markets. Correct. And recently I did a, an episode on the Australian property market. Now, I just had to get Steve Keen back on the show to add some kind of depth to understanding or try to understand what's going on. But you're in the heart of Brisbane at the moment. Correct. And just, you know, would you want to share with us, you know, your thoughts and what you see and what you feel is going to happen or is anything going to happen at all? (laughs) I know it's only speculative, but. Look, where I'm sitting right now, I can see about eight or nine cranes and I live in a, you know, two-story house surrounded by other houses. I'm right in the middle of, a massive uh, development boom in Brisbane uh, at the moment. And all over the East Coast capitals in Australia, there is the biggest apartment construction boom in history. Um, And a lot of that has been funded by foreign investors, people getting money out of China and elsewhere. But, hey, look, I'm an economist. I mostly care about real resources and rents have been falling nationally for the first time in the history of the recorded rent index, which is about 30 years. And so that's in in nominal terms. Um, So that's terrific. So that's falling even more in real terms. So I'm I'm perfectly happy with that. In terms of prices, a lot of uh, the price uh, increase is due to Sydney and Melbourne, which make up together um, around 55% of the housing in Australia. So, yeah, so essentially, you know, if, if Sydney and Melbourne go up 10%, the country, you know, index goes up 5.5% or whatever it is, right? Outside of there, properties crashing in Perth and Darwin, stable, perhaps beginning to fall in Brisbane. I suspect what's going to happen is that interest rates will be lowered incrementally, another percent in the next year. And I suspect property prices will have a kind of sudden drop in Sydney and Melbourne and after that a kind of prolonged, you know, um, a prolonged decline as Australia begins to catch the global deflation, which I don't think many people are seeing coming just yet. 
but we had the CPI data out today in Australia and it's still 1% annually, which is far below the 2 to 3% target band. And the RBA did cut early this year uh, after a low inflation print. So I suspect they will again. And, you know, if rents are falling uh, at a couple of percent a year, wages are growing at their lowest rate in a long time, you know, prices you know, even if monetary policy is eased, you know, that sort of, it still can't support uh, the bubble. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's going to come off. Uh, we didn't really have much of a property crash uh, in 2008, 2009. We had a lot of um, public investment uh, at the time. Uh, the stimulus package, we call it, I think it was around $60 billion, which is quite a lot. Uh, we built a lot of new school halls, installed installation, gave everybody a thousand dollars in cash, yes, and all of that, that. Um, you know, it kind of it did the trick. Um, and and since then, we didn't have a big crash. We've kind of had a bit of stagnation. We've had the um, resources boom in Western Australia and Queensland and the Northern Territory. So the engineers made a lot of money for a few years, but that's come off a lot. Iron ore prices have completely. Uh, unwound. Um, so Australia is essentially catching up to the stagnation that we see in you know, the rest of the developed world uh, is the way I see it. And we haven't really had much of a pop on our real estate market. And I, I suspect we're in for a, maybe not as extreme as some countries, but a, but a bit of a one uh, coming soon. Australia seems to be a, a country of a couple of micro markets but when you talk about property it's the same here in ireland you know the dublin property market house prices have risen rapidly over the last couple of years and now the rest of the country is playing catch-up because it's more of an urban area it's a city a lot of people you know a quarter of the population are living in one county dublin <coughs> out of the 32 in, yeah. uh, in ireland yeah yeah very similar so we have about a quarter in sydney and a quarter in melbourne and pretty much, you know, <laughs> you know, if you look at a map of the population density around Australia, you, you'll see that there's, there's not a lot going um, once you get away from the coast. <laughs> Cameron, yeah, you, your other types of research, you have a paper there. I, d- I don't know if you want to talk about it or something else, but um, what if consumers decided to go to all go green? Yeah. Or the theory of return seeking firms. So I, I like the whole idea of the environment, to be honest. And I've had a couple of people on the show that talked about the environmental impact on economies. And I, I'd love to know a bit about that paper. What if consumers decided to all go green? Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, that, that was the outcome of my, my masters. If you recall, I was just saying, um, I wanted to know if it really made a difference. And so that's exactly what I tried to find out. And so with the help of uh, a professor at the University of Sydney and their data and, and some national data on spending, um, I, I basically ran some simulations of this, this rebound effect model. Um, the basic idea being that if I make a consumption decision that I think is in, good for the environment, but it saves me money because I'm not driving or I'm not flying or I'm turning the lights out. I still have that money to spend that I will spend on something else. And and because the economy is interconnected or whatever I spend on is going to have some kind of environmental cost. And so I run that through and, you know, I, I 
can't remember off the top of my head, but it was something like, if you believe what goes into into understanding, you know, the embodied energy and emissions of goods, that if you if you stop driving and instead cycle, then you're only really saving about 70% of what you think if you just subtract the emissions from driving and say, that's my environmental benefit. You have to then add back, you know, 30% of that um, because you're on average, depending on your income level, going to spend on a bunch of other things and those things have an environmental cost as well. You know, I guess I... My little contribution there was to allow the model to vary with income level within the uh, within the data and show that. Um, oh, what did I show at the end? I th- off the top of my head, that the uh, this effect is higher at lower income levels. Uh, so because lower income households have higher shares of their expenditure on energy and transport and things like that. So on average, if they stop doing one thing, they'll end up doing that other thing. Um, so, you know, we should, we should, to be more effective, we should ask the rich people to, to cut back, <laughs> essentially. Would you think it's a, it's a myth to cycle instead of drive to save? the environment in terms of CO2 emissions, so should we be concentrating on other things? And I only ask that because I, I watched a documentary called Cowspiracy and there seems to be a conspiracy mm-hmm. around this whole idea of reducing your carbon footprint by reducing the driving time you, you spend and cycle instead. But it's actually to do with the consumption of beef, for example, and the more cattle we have on the planet it relates to or equates to more CO2 emissions <laughs> and a reduction of rainforests and that type of thing. Is there anything you kind of look into in terms of that type of environment? Yeah, so I have, you know, it's on my blog from July 2008. I I was puzzling over those exact same <laughs> things uh, because um, <laughs> uh, because... You know, I live in kind of a, an alternative area with a lot of vegetarians and they were telling me I should be vegetarian uh, because of the environment, not only because of animal rights beliefs and things like that, but because of the environmental impact. And then, you know, immediately I obviously think of this rebound effect because I've been studying it for two years. And I thought, well... Let's think about what would happen if everybody became vegetarian. We'd have a lot of land that we graze cattle on that we wouldn't graze cattle on, but that we couldn't really grow any crops on. What would we do that with that land? Would it, you know, would we improve it uh, environmentally or would we just bulldoze it and, and do something else with it? You know, so those are the types of offsetting effects that are going to happen. We just don't know what is going to happen to them, but we've got to consider them. So um, the other, you know, the big picture one is that, uh, well, if if feeding everybody's no constraint on, on, for example, population growth in many areas, then perhaps, you know, we as a species will fill that, fill that gap by essentially just breeding more because we can now support a bigger population. Um, I mean, there are many avenues through which offsetting effects will take place and uh, perhaps the net effect is it's quite good but it's probably not as good as what most people who are vegetarian for the environment believe it to be and 
you know, it's worthy of a lot of thought. I'm sure there are some examples. Um, you could piece together a reasonable idea of looking at what happens um, to former grazing land when you can no longer graze, but it's still privately owned and what sort of uses it gets put to, that sort of stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm wary of that. And in fact, my thinking ended up at the end of this because I still want to know what, what can we do as a community, right, to help the environment. Uh, and, and I guess I became a fan of, I became a fan of direct regulation. So it's a bit like, I mean, a good example is I want to save the fish in the Great Barrier Reef so I don't eat fish. But if there's a quota of fish out there and everybody can still sell the quota no matter what, even if I, I stop eating fish and the price goes down a bit, it's not going to make any difference to the number of fish. However, if you reduce the quota by 50%, you're definitely, no matter who eats, chooses to eat fish or not at what price, only going to catch 50% of the fish in that area. So, you know, if you don't want uh, particular lands to be taken over um, for grazing, well, you draw a line on a map and implement a rule and say, well, you can't graze in that land. You know, it's a national park. It's only, it's an area for certain protected uses and so on. And that, you know, it's going to work and everyone, you know, prices will adjust if it constrains some kind of output. But no matter what, you definitely will protect that land, you know, given the, the political will and appropriate enforcement and things like that. And regarding the Great Barrier Reef, there is a threat to that. And how much of an impact could that have on the Australian economy or the economy of the area? Uh, look, it's, it's very hard to say. I haven't looked very closely into the details. Um, I actually used to work for the, uh, the state government in a group called Water Planning that regulates uh, land uses and, uh, in river catchments and uh, taking water from, from different rivers. Um, so I'm somewhat familiar with the, uh, the regulations around um, water runoff and things like that, but as far as the tourism industry and, and fishing and everything else that goes on, um, yeah, it, it changes quite a lot. And there are various, um, you know, protected areas that keep growing over time. Uh, for example, where the fish breed that's, you know, in shallower waters and weed grass beds and wherever. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't really keep up. Um, look, overall, my suspicion is, based on my general knowledge of the size of the tourism sector and what the marginal change would be, it's, it wouldn't be particularly noticeable in the overall data. It would be very hard, I think, to come up with a, you know, if we look back in 30 years and say, oh, the reef took a hit then, can we see this in the data in terms of the economic activity? I suspect it would be pretty small. It would be only one of those those things that really changes over multiple decades. Uh, very hard to put your finger on the data and say this is what happened because of this. Um, but I dare say, you know, there will be an effect. Cameron, it's fairly late in Australia. Is it okay to ask you a couple of quickfire questions before we wrap up? Yeah, let's do it, Frank. Okay, Cameron. Um, I'd love to know who your influencers are in terms of economics or who directed you in terms of your thinking or was this something, a path that you'd end up discovering yourself by your, not your, your exposure, I suppose, to the type of economics you were 
you discovered on your way through your master's and PhD? Yeah, um, I guess I was influenced. Yeah, uh, I guess I ended up with this cascading influence of reading someone, finding someone else, and 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 so on and so forth. Um, uh, Steve Keane was a, a big influence on me uh, very early on. Reading his first edition of Debunking Economics, I literally I had to keep putting it down and and thinking to myself, "Is this guy serious? Is that is is?" everything they really taught me, you know, not true. And, you know, are these results not as, you know, I, I thought they were teaching me science. <laughs> and uh, and then I, I started checking all of his claims. And, you know, and when I started my PhD, I, I, I remember in a microeconomics class uh, reading the Maz Kalel textbook going, oh, my God, that's exactly what Steve King was talking about. That is one of those hidden assumptions that no one wants to talk about. But it's right there. <laughs> so I guess he definitely um, he definitely made me even more curious, and uh, I guess aggressively so, um, and very very uh, uh, critical or uh, what would you call it? Um, you know, I, I don't like to believe things. I need a lot of. I, I really want to know, dig deep down, and know fundamentally what's going on before I really take it on board. Um, two other uh, economists, Ronald Coase. Um, uh, I don't know if you read a blog. I, I, I wrote a blog called uh, Thinking Like Coase, Not an Economist, because um, uh, and I linked to an interview there from a few years back. And he was just a, a common sense guy who looked at the problems and, for example, you know, why are there firms if prices are so good at coordinating exchange? I mean, once you start thinking about that, it's very hard. Um, it's very hard not to. <laughs> Anytime someone tells you, oh, markets are great, you think, well, you know, why does IBM exist and not just everybody contract to each other? Um, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, another one was William Bemol, uh with the... the uh, um, the whole idea of the cost disease for education and things like that for areas of the economy that can't be automated, that uh, essentially their labor is fixed, you know, they go up in relative prices over time. And once you think about that, it's very hard to ignore. It's one of those big core fundamental ideas that somehow um, are very, uh, very rarely understood amongst the economic profession. And I guess a Alan Blinder is another one who um, he did a, a survey of firm, firm, firms and how they set prices and things like that, and and he basically, you know, said overwhelmingly the bad news for economic theory is that 11% of GDP is produced under conditions of rising marginal cost, which is of course apparently the standard, um, the textbook standard, the common, the normal, the baseline that everyone thinks about. He said, well, that's the exception rather than the rule. And, of course, he has other work on ants and aggregation and interaction that, you know, got me headed down that path as well. Uh, so, and, yeah, um, I would say um, Coase and Bamol also got me going. You were going to – you mentioned about the return-seeking firms, I think, before. Um, I think Bamol had a paper that said, what if – Firms don't profit profit maximize; they revenue maximize. 
And what if they, you know, how, how can they even know what their proper profit is depending on their internal rate of return and interest rates and all these particular things you need to know to even condense what real activities you're going to be doing along your production plan into a profit. And so, um, so that got me thinking and then it's, it's actually one of my pet hates in economics is what I call the implicit denominator. There's a lot of, uh, indexes, measures, and things that we talk about, but we never make them relative to what's important. You know, we often talk about GDP, but we should have, for example, if we want to know how wealthy individuals in a country are getting, we should have something per capita rather than as a whole, because we can all be getting poorer if the population growth is is going faster than, than GDP or some other measure of, um, you know, economic activity. Um, so this is what I call the implicit denominator problem. And, and when you come to uh, the firm, you've got, you know, revenue minus cost as profit. And you're like, but but per what? And it's actually there when you when we have what we call this, you know, short-term, long-term, you know, arbitrary imposition of a, a time on our model in the short term, there's something fixed, right? A fixed factor of production. Obviously, we're maximizing profit per put on the denominator fixed factor of production. Capital is constrained. For example, we only have one building. We have to decide our output. We can't just build a new factory immediately. We have to decide our output in the meantime. And so I said, well, actually, you know, if capital inputs cost money, surely what people are doing is maximizing revenues minus costs divided by the costs. You're maximizing the rate of return on all your costs, the profit divided by the costs. And so I said, well, what what would that look like if you set your level of output um, as a firm, based ev- basing everything else as if we're in this perfect economic world, but instead of um, profits, we maximize uh, our rate of return on all costs. And what you find is that you get a completely different picture of of output decisions. Um, and th- this kind of surprised me in some ways. I thought that um, output would be a bit lower, but it was quite a lot lower. Um, I'm just having a flick through, actually, of um, some of those things. Yeah. And you know, it was very, very interesting. It, it, you know, the conclusion was that, you know what, if you're a price-taking firm – it doesn't matter what the price level is. You just you just produce where you minimise costs. And if you want to do something else, you should build another piece of capital somewhere else and maximise the rate of return on those costs, and that would make you produce at the minimum cost. And so, you know, to me, that gelled with a lot of other results. For example, Alan Blinder on his survey of firms about producing on the downward slope, sloping part of your cost curve and all those sorts of things are perfectly possible. Other sorts of things are possible, like a downward sloping supply curve, which you also see when you do surveys of firms and and look at the data on output and, and price. So I, I thought, you know, hey, I'm not going to overclaim this. I'm just going to say, hey, you know, we've got this implicit denominator here. What if we make it explicit, put it in the model and see how that changes? Uh, and so that paper's been rejected nine times so far. And... 
<laughs> I'm not sure if I I ended up writing a, a blog post about um, the history of this um, academic publication cycle, um, but it's been rejected for being uh, obvious and implied, and everybody knows it, and for being completely wrong and bogus and doesn't make sense, and why would you even do it? And almost this both views by the same reviewers as well. So um, I, I did write a, a post about saying, you know, what's going on, economists? Do you even know what your own theory says? Because when I tell you something different, you're all defending a different version of this fundamental core profit-maximizing theory. You know, you're all imposing your own implicit hidden assumptions on it you should talk to each other and work out what they are because I've questioned one and you're defending different versions of the story. So um, that's been eye-opening for me. And, uh, you know, the, the, the blog posts I've written about have been well-received and much more popular than, uh, than the papers being received at, at any economics journal um, so far, even some of the more uh, open-minded ones. So... Um, I'll send you a link to, to my write-up on that. <laughs> Definitely. And I'll put all the links as well on the show notes page, economicrockstar.com forward slash Cameron Murray. Cameron, uh, just another one or two questions. Yeah, if you could step into the DeLorean and time travel, where would you go and who would you love to speak to? <laughs> and what would you ask? Uh, I, I assume I'm not speaking to my younger self and giving myself some good advice. <laughs> You could, you could share that. <laughs> no, let's stick to economics. Eh? Um, I'll be honest. I think now's a pretty good time to be alive. I'd, I'd be curious to understand the motivations uh, of a lot of um, early pioneers like Stanley Jevons and things like that who are measuring firm output and product and and why they were doing that and and. Because for me, knowing why these early pioneers of measurement and understanding economics were doing it, kind of, I have this, what am I trying to say? We have this, all these economic ideas that we teach at universities now that are relatively modern. And, you know, we say firms should do this, firms maximize profits or returns or whatever they're going to do. And then you have to think, but hang on a minute, there's been firms or businesses for far longer than the idea of maximizing profits or whatever it is that we say firms do right now. So what were they doing before we had this idea of what they do? What were their objectives? How did they implement them? Um, you know, so that that's one of those puzzles that could be understood by finding out uh, the motivations of of uh, those early m measuring economists like Jevons. Um, yeah, that's probably one of my – for time travelling, yeah, it's probably my main one. That's a first anyway. And do you have a recommended book you'd like to share with us? I know you mentioned debunking economics. We could leave it at that if you wish. There's a book called Ultra Society by Peter Turchin, and I reviewed it for uh, Evonomics. 
But anyway, Peter Turchin's book, Ultra Society, is um, is really about cooperation and that trade-off between cooperating with our group as a whole and then breaking off into subgroups that try to increase their share of the economic pie at a cost to the rest. So, um, you know, as a very brief summary, um, what makes um, you know, wealthy and powerful uh, nation states or city states strong is usually they have to coordinate very, very well with each other. Uh, very loyal, very cooperative, doing what's interest- in the interest of a group because they have many enemies to coordinate and combat. But once they run out of enemies, they begin fighting amongst themselves because you'll find that, for example, the political class uh, can feather their own nest by, you know, taking resources uh, from the working class and things like that. And you end up with this social dysfunction because there's no enemy to bring you together. You just create your own enemies and you, you splinter apart into subgroups. So ultra societies are really, it's like one of those Peter Diamond style books of this big brush picture of human cooperation, the role of war in investment um, and cooperation. And yeah, I, I found it a really... Yeah, really complementary to some of the micro-level ideas I've been looking at in my PhD, so I'd recommend that one. Fantastic. Carmen, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast, and I personally learned a lot from you. Share again with our listeners where they could find you. Uh, So I recommend coming to my blog, fresheconomicthinking.com. That's the best place. Uh, Rumple Statskin is who I am on Twitter. You can find my Twitter button on, on the blog. That actually came about um, when I started writing for Macro Business. Everyone has a little pseudonym they, they, they write as, and apparently I was weaving statistics into gold Lovely, uh, uh, at the time. So I thought, hey, look, it's not too bad. I'll stick with that. Um, so that, that was the guys at Macro Business. That's uh, an Australian economics and, uh, and finance blog uh, that I occasionally write for these days still. But yeah, it's, it's also been very influential in, in changing uh, and informing the economic debate in Australia, which is pretty, pretty narrow and captured by um, political interests in the mainstream media, that's for sure. You can find all the links to Cameron on economicrockstar.com forward slash Cameron Murray. Cameron, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rock star. Thanks, Frank. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.